We are back in the book of Daniel, so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 6 as we continue our journey through this Old Testament book, and we are in probably one of the most familiar passages in this book. Uh, Daniel is in the lion's den. And as we catch up with our guy this morning, I want you to make sure that you have the right picture in your mind's eye of our protagonist. Daniel at this point is, is elderly. He's fragile. He's, he's pushing 90 years old. He's reached an age that almost no one reaches in the ancient world. He's lived under three kingdoms. He's served many rulers. As we've traced his story, we remember that he was born a prince of Judah, but he spent almost an entire career serving as an advisor, a royal advisor in Babylon after the, the conquest of his nation by the Babylonians. And, and the fact that someone who was a war captive and a, a foreign exile has risen to such a place of power and influence is itself incredible. But now at, at 90 years old, he's watched not the, only the, the rise and fall of his kingdom, but the rise and fall of Babylon. We saw that Babylon has been defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And again, Daniel finds himself as a prisoner of war. Again, he is drafted into the service of a pagan empire. And if you know anything about the biblical character Daniel, you probably know about today's sleepover with lions. It's a tale that we learn as kids. It's a, a favorite of Sunday school teachers. And I think kids so engage with this story because they too fear monsters lurking in the dark. And there is just great comfort in learning that God protects us from what goes bump in the night. God shuts their mouths. The hungry lions are not permitted to hurt those who belong to him. And it is such sweet peace to a frightened little soul. And I think that this is often how God first reveals himself to us when we're small. I think back to myself when I was a five-year-old, first coming to know and trust Jesus. There was really only two things I knew deep in my soul about God. One was that he was my loving father who, who adopted me and called me his own. And the second was that he was a refuge. He was a strong tower that I could run to when things got scary. And for the first 10 years of my life and of faith, that was essentially enough for me to know that God was safe and strong and for me. But now as we return to this familiar passage, as I come at it again as an adult with fresh eyes, I think that there is more to be revealed here in this story. Daniel reveals for us the power of prayer and the fearlessness 
of faith. He reveals the power of prayer and the fearlessness of faith. So let's see how this unfolds as we start reading together. So this is Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Let me help us get our bearings. Last week, Daniel introduced us to this figure called Darius the Mede. And he's depicted as kind of the ruler of this new power that's in charge, the Medo-Persian Empire. These were the folks that conquered Babylon. And it's a little confusing because we don't know anything about this character, Darius the Mede. Uh, There's no other kind of historical record of his existence. And in fact, a lot of kind of the other ancient sources uh, say that this guy named Cyrus the Persian was leading the empire's armies at the time. So it's hard to figure out what to do with this guy. But one of the things, uh, just quickly, two of the ways I think you can understand this is one, that this guy Darius the Mede is actually Cyrus the Persian because this guy Cyrus was the crown prince of two kingdoms. His dad was the king of Persia, so through his dad, he uh, had hereditary claim to the throne of Persia. His mom was the princess of the Medes, so through his mother, he had hereditary claim to the throne of the Medes. So those two kingdoms are united into a single empire in the person of this man, Cyrus. So one way to understand it is Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Those are just different throne names in different kingdoms for the same guy. But another option is that uh, this guy Darius the Mede is Cyrus's uncle. One of the Greek historians, Xenophon, calls him the last, this man Cyraxes, one of the last independent kings of the Median Empire. And uh, apparently he had no sons. He gave his daughter in marriage to his nephew Cyrus. And it seems that for a while they ruled together as co-rulers for a few years until uncle uh, died of old age shortly after the fall of Babylon. So that's a a sidetrack, but that's how we understand. I think it's that second option that this is uncle who's ruling with Cyrus at the beginning of their empire. And what we get to see is we get to see how they administer their expanding empire. They have all of these provinces and they have these things called guys named satraps who are the royal governors. And over the satraps, they've placed three kind of high officials that are supposed to protect the empire from corruption, from graft, from theft. And, and one of these kind of high officials, these cabinet level officials is Daniel. And it's kind of astounding because he was a holdover from the Babylonians. This is a guy essentially from like the previous presidential administration, but if it was an entirely different kingdom and he's given this place of authority. And as we keep reading, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. If you remember last week, we talked about leaving behind a legacy of blessing. And in Daniel, we find something nearly miraculous. We find a squeaky clean government official. And it's, it's shocking because he could rightly be called, I don't know, to use modern terms, like a member of, of the deep state. For 70-odd for years, he's haunted the halls of power. He's been this political advisor in several administrations. And now his opponents, they want to dig up dirt on him. And so they kind of scrutinize his record. They're, they turn over every rock in search of scandal. They open every closet looking for a skeleton, and they find nothing, zero. This man is a gift to the kingdom, and the other Persian officials hate him for it. And maybe this is just a case of the, the young spurning the old, right? Like, this is our moment, old timer. Get off the stage. Make room for us. Maybe it's a nationalistic thing. Hey, why are we giving such influence and authority to this man who worked for our enemies? Shouldn't this job be given to a loyal Persian or, or a loyal Mede? Maybe they resented his integrity. A lot of folks at the de in those days went into politics to line their pockets, and now they have this straight-laced old vegan who's standing in their way of all of the schemes that they're trying to hatch. We don't know what their issue with Daniel was, but despite the king's favor, these men hated him. And it's often this way with Christ's followers in the world. As Jesus said in John 15, 19, he said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Whew. Now don't overread that. I heard someone say it this way this week. If people hate you because of Jesus, that's to be expected. If people hate Jesus because of you, that's a problem. Daniel is hated not because he's an obnoxious jerk. He's hated because he does not operate according to the corruption of his society. He's hated for his faithfulness to God and God's way. And in fact, it is on those grounds that his opponents discover an opportunity to entrap him. We read this in verse 5. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, all, <coughs> excuse me,
except Daniel. Um, And the counselors and the governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Daniel, or King Darius, signed the document and injunction. This is a great scheme. So massaging of the king's ego. So seemingly patriotic. O king, Babylon fell in a day and and our empire has grown dramatically overnight. Now your new subjects, they might have old loyalties. They might still be faithful to their old gods, to their old priesthood. So maybe it's a good idea just for a month, just for a month, we, we train them to look to you as the only mediator between humans and the heavens. You alone, just for 30 days, could be the God's sole representative on the earth. It would be great to unite our empire, wouldn't it? And Darius goes, you know what? I am pretty awesome. I like the sound of that. Where do I sign? And he puts his seal on that edict. He binds it in such a way that not even a king can contradict that order. Which makes sense, because if you think of this empire as a a partnership, a, a coming together of two peoples being ruled at the beginning by two rulers, the law needs to, what one person agrees to, needs to be bind the other person. So not even Darius can go back, because the kings have decreed it. So the matter is set in stone. It's game, set, match. Persian officials won, Daniel zero. Can we talk about the lions? It's kind of weird and inventive. Uh, Lions are symbols of royalty and power throughout the ancient Near East. The Babylonian kings in particular loved lions. The processional way in ancient Babylon has all of these... um, beautifully intricate uh, brick reliefs reliefs of lions uh, as you head to the palace. They had a park just on the outset, out skirts, brain. Sorry, we had neighbors that had a party with loud music till like one in the morning last night. So my brain's still working up. But they had this park on the outskirts of the city that where they kept lions as this symbol of their empire and power. So the ancient world loved lions. What was the innovation was they never used them as an object of punishment. They kept them in captivity. They weren't an object of torture. Uh, And so, you know, the king's probably hearing this, and, oh, this is a little dramatic flourish. This is, he's probably not processing through what this actually means. It's just a bit of hyperbole to dissuade anyone who might want to disobey. Yet Daniel sees right through their scheme, 
And even if the king hasn't realized it yet, he knows he's being targeted. But apparently, he's completely unruffled. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Daniel reveals the power of prayer. I think there's a variety of ways that Daniel could have responded to this situation. He, he could have approached the king to, to protest the injustice of this edict. He could have exposed the kind of the political maneuvering that was happening behind the scenes to keep the king himself from having his wishes carried out. He could have torn his clothes and gone into mourning and sackcloth and ashes and made a big scene in the streets. Instead, he continues his regular practice of prayer. He keeps to his routine. And I really want to interrogate Daniel's prayer life because I find it so foreign to my experience. This isn't a man falling to his knees in a moment of crisis. This is a man who's most comfortable and confident on his knees before the Lord. So let's ask a couple questions. What is the focus of Daniel's prayer? Well, we're given a contextual clue. He's he's literally praying towards Jerusalem. Well, why? Well, he knows his history. He knows that that's where God's temple was. And he remembers that when King Solomon, his king from back in the day, first dedicated that place where where men and women could have an encounter with the living God, he had prayed this prayer at its dedication. He said, this is King Solomon praying before God. He said, if they, your people, God, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin, and you're angry with them and you give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near. Daniel's like, yes, that was our experience. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then God, here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer, and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Daniel's 90 years old. 
And he's more concerned with seeing his people's heart turned back to God than he is with saving his own skin. So three times a day, he approaches his window to labor in prayer for the restoration of his nation, for the end of their physical and their spiritual exile. And remember, Daniel's a eunuch. He has no children of his own. This will be his legacy, partnering with God in the rescue of, of this and future generations. So for Daniel, this work is too important for it even to be interrupted by someone's petty political game. So that's the focus of Daniel's prayer. Now notice it's defiance. It's been his rhythm to, to talk to God in full view of his community in that upper window. And as the edict comes down, he doesn't switch to lifting up silent prayers. He doesn't retreat into some kind of inner room. He keeps praying in the window. And you might say, well, didn't Jesus say when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Maybe Daniel should have been more stealthy. Maybe he should have adapted and saved himself all that headache. And I'm not here to argue with Jesus, but I do think context matters. There's an old seminary professor uh, used to say, when prayer becomes fashionable, praying in secret is a good thing. But when prayer is prescribed, to pray in private becomes an act of cowardice. So Daniel's not being needlessly provocative or performative. He has always lived his faith in public. And he will continue to do so, whatever the law may be. And I wonder, too, if his defiance is rooted in the fact that he sees prayer as his most effective response in this disorienting moment. The exiles were compilers of Scripture. So surely Daniel knew David's words in Psalm 55 when he said, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. Daniel finds himself in the throes of conflict, a conflict that's both tangible and spiritual, but he knows his battle doesn't take place in the political arena. He knows his battle doesn't come through making proclamations on whatever the ancient version of social media is. His battle happens in prayer. And prayer is not his last-ditch effort, not his Hail Mary attempt. He sees it as his most potent course of action. So he prays defiantly. 
Let's mark as well, not just the focus, not just the defiance, but the consistency of his prayer life. I like to think of myself as a person who prays. I have a time with the Lord in the morning. I usually am sitting down with a journal and a, and a Bible. And, and then as I go through my day, I feel like the Lord and I have this kind of running conversation where I'm processing and praying for the people I encounter and the experiences that happen throughout the day. But this week, knowing I was going to pray this or preach this passage, I thought, well, you know, maybe for a week I will adopt Daniel's practice of the set times of prayer, morning, noon, and night, and, and see what God does, what he reveals. And what he revealed is the utter lack of consistency in my prayer life. My experiment failed. I discovered that I let situations distract me. And really what was discovered was that deep inside, I assume that whatever I'm doing in the moment is more important than talking to God. I believe this lie that my performance is more significant than what happens in prayer. And it's funny, we, we aspire to be like Daniel. We aspire to be God's witnesses in disorienting times, but we fail to acknowledge that Daniel's power came from this consistent rhythm of having these running conversations with God. There's four words that are used to kind of describe Daniel's prayer life in here. Prayer, thanksgiving, petition and plea. I want to unpack them for us briefly, and I can't get super nerdy because Daniel, this portion of Daniel is in Aramaic, and that's not a language that I have, but petition and plea, we'll start there. It seems to be a a combination phrase that can also uh, be translated, look to God for favor. And petition and plea is all about approaching God from a place of Lack. It's coming to God in our desperation and need. And, and Daniel's regularly compelled to seek God in this way because regularly as he lives in Babylon and now in Persia, he realizes that I keep coming to the end of my strength, the end of my resources. And survival is hard enough, but I've been called to be this agent of God's blessing and presence in this place. So God, I I need you. And he's committed to him calling out to God whenever he hits this moment of crisis or a situation of need. So consistently, he brings God his petition and his pleas. Now, that word prayer has a slightly different nuance. In center view in prayer is God himself, not our sense of lack, but God himself himself. This is approaching God not strictly for provision or protection, but it's coming to God because God is the source of life itself. Prayer is the sacred conversation that you press into because you're saying yes to a living relationship with the person of God. That's why that word prayer is often associated with other words like communion and worship and devotion. 
It's bringing the God, the rawness of who you are, your feelings. It's, it's stilling yourself in his presence to listen. It's seeking genuine connection with your creator. So if I were to use metaphors from my own experience, petition and plea are kind of like when I call my wife desperately and say, hey, I locked my keys in the car. Come rescue me with the extra set of keys. And prayer is more like date night. It's that relational communion and connection. And we're invited to come to God with both. What did Paul say in Philippians? Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. With thanksgivings. Don't miss that last consistent part of Daniel's prayer life. He was thankful. He affirmed God's goodness. He expressed his gratitude for God's past faithfulness. He celebrated the beauty of God's character and grace. Thanksgiving is where we remind our soul and our spirit to drop anchor in the Lord. No matter how fierce the storms we're facing, because we've tested and we've seen that he loves us. And that his love is the most powerful force in all creation. We see the focus. We see the defiance. We see the consistency of his prayer life. And the last thing we see is the posture. Daniel prays on his knees, which for a 90-year-old man, three times a day, is costly. Why does he do it? Why kneel? Well, one commentator says it's this outward sign of his inward attitude of, of submission and humility before God. It's an acknowledgement of who he is and who God is. And I know that because of Jesus, we're invited to boldly approach the throne of grace. And Daniel knows that, but he also kneels because he wants to remind himself that while it is a throne of grace, it is still a throne. He is God, and we are not. And he's teaching, he's reminding himself about the power of prayer the invitation that it is. He's, he's removing the flippancy of it by falling to his knees. Daniel reveals for us the true power of prayer. And we see that it's this prayer life that prepares him for his final trial because without this life of prayer, we don't experience Daniel's fearless faith without daily, regular communion and conversation with God, there is no way that we are able to rest among the lions. And let the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, let's quickly finish out 
our story. It's an ending you might know well, but let's hear it. Verse 12. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, Yes, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said, O king, no, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, The king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? The king is frantic. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He's Couldn't do anything to free Daniel from this trap. He's the victim of his own pride. He's hemmed in by the plotting of his own advisors and the nature of the law of his empire. But then we read, Then Daniel said to the king, which is a surprise, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And I love this line. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Then the king commanded... And those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. These pagan emperors love their violence. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. These were not some toothless little kitty cats. These were, the danger was real. These were apex predators. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. 
he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Daniel reveals to us the power of prayer and the fearlessness of faith. We must trust, commune, and depend upon God, and that will make all the difference. I'm realizing that this wasn't a quick fix. This wasn't an overnight lesson. This was 90 years of prayer that shaped him and changed him and enabled him to endure this elite-level test. Daniel faces this trial like it's a regular Tuesday morning. And it's not because he had superhuman courage. It's not because he had some confidence that his prayers were wildly effective or uniquely supercharged. What it is is that he has 90 years of evidence of God's love and his presence and his power and his faithfulness. And it has made this journey from his head to his heart through his time communing with God in prayer. He has a real partnership, a robust trust in the God of the universe. He has these habits and rhythms of mind that reinforce every moment of every day that he is God's dearly loved son, that he was sent into this exile for a purpose that no one can thwart God's purposes and that nothing can snatch him from God's hand. Nothing can snatch us from our Savior's hand. And it's a lesson that he learns through that act of prayer. Let's glorify this God of ours as we pray today. Dear God, it's not about us. It's about you. It's about learning to love you and trust you and discovering that we are loved by you and that you are trustworthy despite us, God. Your grace has changed us. Your grace saves us. Your grace enables us to love you, to love others, and to be a blessing in the world. May we slow down and press in to you. For you are our true Savior and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.